Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Today's episode, we have Justin and Tim. This week, we tackle the science behind some of the latest sci-fi movies like The Hunger Games. We talk about the possibilities of things like genetically engineered animals, simulated virtual environments, and a whole bunch of other crazy sci-fi technologies such as many gels, and what we've actually managed to accomplish with these in the real world. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. In The Hunger Games and a lot of other sci-fi stories, we talk about genetically engineered super creatures, creatures that have designed for specific purposes or plants that grow out of control because they've been engineered that way. Um, Hunger Games is not alone in this. If you remember the terrible, terrible movie um, Deep Blue, Deep Blue Sea, it was about genetically engineered sharks that were super intelligent. And there's a, there's a raft of other terrible and good movies that involve genetically engineered creatures for specific yep. purposes. Mm. Including the uh, always um, always fun uh, Day of the Triffids, where the, uh, the flowers, genetically engineered flowers, attack when the human race becomes blind. Well, that's right. And that's, that's, um, that's another great, uh, very, not cliche, but very trope-setting and defining um, movie and book. And the idea behind all of these things is here is that we undertake science of genetics, which was great. It taught us a lot of things about how plants and animals and ourselves work by unlocking the mysteries of DNA. And then we started to say, well, what can we do with this? Is there anything we can actually uncover or make use of all the things that we're learning? So you might have heard about how we've mapped the human genome and we've mapped various other animals and plants' genomes. And what that means is if you break us down to our fundamental building blocks, our DNA, we actually are trying, well, the mapping process is helping us identify what each part of that building block's role is. So we know that, okay, well, that gene here, that's responsible for making you bald. And so from that, we've learned that baldness is actually passed along the matrilineal line. So, and we learn all these things by understanding our genes. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, aside from the fact of knowing whether or not you're going to be bald, which is useful and even more useful for other things like more important diseases, um, the genetics also enables us to go, okay, well, if we take this gene that's super useful and apply it somewhere else, we can do some fantastic things. And so you end up with some interesting applications of this where you take genes from one animal and by putting it in the correct place in another animal, you can actually take the function of one animal and put it into another. So, for example, we've got this very strange... Um, this very strange example, which in 2000, a company called Nex- Nexia Biotechnologies took a goat and they took the DNA from a spider and the, the, specifically the genes that make that produced spider's web or the proteins that proteins that go to make up the spider's web. Then put that uh, gene into the goat so that it would produce this protein in its milk, which means that um, once you ha- we, all you had to do was milk the goat as opposed to waiting for the spider to spin its web, and you'd be able to actually make silk out of this out of this milk, and you can then go on because you've got in, in a lot much larger quantity in a goat than in a spider, you can go on and turn it into a thing called biosteel, which is a uh, what exactly what it says on the tin biosteel. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a um, material similar to uh, carbon nanotubes where it's woven together into a incredibly uh, strong substance. And and this is this is phenomenal because what we're actually doing here is we're taking we're taking stuff that exists in nature and 
we're adapting it. We're not just using it in a better way. We're actually going, no, 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 if we combine this with this other thing, we'll actually create a super fantastic new material, a new piece of research, a new possibility. So as scary as it might seem, um, genetic engineering is actually really, really powerful for helping us unlock the potential of some of these genes. Another really famous one, and there's one that you'll probably have seen images of, is if you take the phosphorescent, uh, sorry, the bioluminescent gene from deep sea jellyfish, so underwater in the deep sea, at the bottom of the ocean, there's not much light. So most jellyfish and creatures there actually produce their own light. With, with a process called bioluminescence, and that makes them glow, which is really cool, especially if you're at the bottom of the ocean. Um, scientists have isolated and taken that gene and actually and put that into other animals, such as cats, and, and they've taken this bioluminescent gene and put it into goats and cats and pigs, and the goats and cats and pigs are perfectly fine. They're exactly the same as they were before, except that in low-light conditions, they will glow with a faint green or blue colour. Now, what the hell would you want to do that, Justin, aside from having a glow-in-the-dark cat? This process is actually really, really useful um, when it comes to medicine and treatment procedures because now they can actually um, – now they can, instead of having to in- ingest, inject you with radioactive substances to do a lot of trace testing um, when they do the very complicated scans, uh, what they can do instead is inject a fluid or a, vi- or a type, of anti- uh, type of vaccine or virus or something into your body that will go through your cells and go through your bloodstream. But if they give it the bioluminescent gene, it will naturally – naturally glow so when they do some sort of scan on you to so whether it be an x-ray or another type of scan they can see it without having to you know pump you full of radiation and that's just one example of using what you might feel as a really kind of a mundane property to actually help better identify uh, blood flow patterns um, parts of your body which might be infected with cancer or various other illnesses and that, that's a really fascinating use of genetic engineering. One of the other really cool examples of this, as I like, is that when they start to using this to apply to plants. So plants are everywhere, and we've been genetically engineering plants for hundreds and thousands of years. That's how we, you know, breed plant species. Yeah. It's, also, also known as breeding. Yeah, it's a very slow process of genetic engineering, but it's genetic engineering nonetheless. And uh, we've now sped that up with the fact that we understand a bit more what's going on and we can actually create plants that are resistant to bugs. This is a very common piece of genetic engineering. Um, so you could you could genetically engineer a, a piece of lettuce, for example. Uh, some researchers out of uh, Japan and China have been doing um, uh, produce a toxin naturally in the lettuce leaf that is a toxin to caterpillars and scorpions. So now the lettuce can grow without being eaten by these bugs. But thankfully they've also engineered the toxin that it is in... in- it's entirely digestible by humans and doesn't affect them one bit, which is especially what you want if you're making a plant naturally toxic. Yeah, and the thing is that this is stuff that plants are doing anyway. It's not like we have invented this. This is something that a plant or a type of plant or some species will have been doing somewhere, and they have just adapted that for other other uses. And that's fantastic because now they can use less pesticides which hurt the environment even less. So the idea that genetically modifying plants and animals is inherently evil and damaging for the environment is not necessarily true. Another great example of that is they can actually genetically engineer plants like sugarcane and other trees to be more absorbent of carbon dioxide and therefore help clean up our air even faster than they're already doing. So these are just some examples of using genetic engineering to help make our world a better place. Now, what what happens in the Hunger Games with these genetically engineered creatures, Tim? 
Uh, well, these creatures in the Hunger Games, um, there's two creatures that, um, that you're told about in the books, uh, which include um, Jabber Jays, which are um, a species of jay that's been genetically modified so that it can understand understand human speech and then repeat it. And so they're used as um, spy drones. They're released into the into the districts, and then they come back to the capital with news of unrest or dissent or etc. But um, and and the other the other species they use is tracker uh, jackers, which are um, wasps that are genetically engineered so that they um, automatically chase anything that chase for a long time anything that comes near them. It comes near their nest, so they can be used as uh, they used as guard patrols around um, capital establishments. But uh, what happens in the Hunger Games is that uh, the Jabber Jays, which were uh, originally intended as, as spy bots, um, they it turns out that they they're not particularly effective, and so they're, and they're also genetically bred to all be male, so they can't breed. Um, when they when the capital decides to shut down the program, they release the jab jays into the wild, and they and assuming they'll all die off because they're all male. What they didn't factor in was that these genetically modified um, jays are still compat uh, still genetically compatible with other jays, and so they breed with um, breed with the wild birds it, in the forest, creating a hybrid species known as the mockingjay, which is becomes the symbol of the revolution in the Hunger Games. Now this mockingjay keeps the traits of both its parents so that it's, it um, retains the ability to mimic human speech but can't actively repeat it. So it becomes useless as a spy device, but instead its calls become that of garbled human speech. And that's really fascinating because what it's talking about there is the, actually the idea of the way a species will adapt and change. And we can look through not just examples from genetic engineering, but examples of history of why, why the way species merge and adapt over time through breeding. Um, and you only have to look at our population of dogs, for example, to understand just the wide impacts and diversity of breeding, interbreeding between species can have. And certainly traits can be passed along and passed through like that. And it's a really fascinating exploration of what happens when you release really, really purpose-built creatures into the wild. So the purpose-built plants we were talking about before, over time they will breed and these traits will start to spread to other plants even without their specific involvement, which is a fantastic idea as well. So genetic engineering is a really powerful piece of science. It helps out our world in a lot of different ways and isn't necessarily all evil. All right, so in video games, you know when when you get shot, it's not the end of the world, unlike in the real life when it is generally very damaging. In a video game, you either just sit around waiting for your waiting for your health to just grow back, or you run and grab a med pack and it instantly heals you without any sort of wound um, wound binding or um, antiseptic or etc. It just an instant heal um, right there and then. Now, this is obviously just a, pro a consequence of video game mechanics, where they just want you to either keep playing or die easier. But um, this uh, <laughs> having something that can instantly heal you may not be actual total science fiction. A college student um, in New Jersey um, has developed a thing called um, a thing called Vetigel, which sounds awfully like Medigel to me. And what it is is a gel that you apply to a wound, um, to an open wound, and instead of instead of having to wait for your body, to, instead of having to seal 
seal the wound and wait for your body to naturally clot up the blood and begin re-knitting the skin. Uh, this gel um, jump-starts that process so that um, you can almost instantaneously close a wound. Uh, what it, and what it does is it basically is a... You, um, is it's an artificial copy of the stuff that holds your skin together, um, which is known as the extracellular extracellular matrix. Because you may have heard, you may have heard that we're all composed of cells, but we're not just a whole bunch of cells seen on top of each other. Between the cells is a scaffolding called the uh, called extracellular matrix or ECM, and this matrix um, keeps everything together. And if it's damaged, it um, trigger the uh, Chemicals in it, within it trigger the clotting process in in your blood. So what this um, Vetigel does is um, when it, when you you simply apply it, and it's like you're applying basically more more of this matrix. Your body then having uh, it does the hard work for your body because you, the the most tricky part of healing a wound is re, is closing it up. So once it's closed, your body simply clots blood there and begins rebuilding um rebuilding the the cells within it. And this is really this is really cool because if you think about it, what it's doing is it's actually fast healing a wound, a gaping wound. And a lot of the videos demonstrating this that they have, it actually literally shows them doing just that, getting a, a big pork loin and filling it up with with pig's blood, and then making a big gash, a three inch you know, gash along that. Then blood starts spewing out as you'd expect <laughs> if you cut open something. Uh, and they put the veti gel on, and it just actually seals up the wound within seconds. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, and so the you know, the three things that it, that the um the gel does on contact with skin is stimulates blood clotting, activates the platelet cells in your blood to further cover the um to uh, further cover the wound, and it also compresses the wound because it shrinks as it as it um as it works. This is all well and good as applied to humans when you or, or creatures when you've got. Bio, biologic sub- substance that can already naturally heal itself and you're able to speed that process along. But what if you wanted to uh, fix something that wasn't biological? What if you wanted something like an iPhone screen to fix itself after being cracked? Now, um, cre- there are creatures in nature that can re- the regrow entire limbs from after an injury, like several species of lizards and um, iguanas and such. But this uh, scientists in Pittsburgh in uh, recently this year have made a synthetic, a, not, a different sort of synthetic gel. And now this gel doesn't activate anything biological, but rather can heal itself. So it's a um, it's a self healing material. And it, and so instead of coming from like the biological and the medicine background. These, these engineers actually have come from an engineering and a material science background and have basically uh, used basically self-healing carbon nanorods that are inserted into these, these, these materials that then promote the growth of this material to self-heal it itself after a cut. So basically it will, it will reclose itself or re- reform itself as it was before. So that's, that's phenomenal when you think about it because, as, as Tim mentioned, you'd be able to regrow screens or self-heal uh, structures like cars or anything else. So on the one hand, we have Medigel, which would help us rub onto our wounds just like in the Hunger Games and heal our wounds faster, but we'd also be able to make sure that our machinery and our equipment and everything else that we have might be able to regrow and fix itself just as well. So we can make self-healing gels, uh, body armor with these nanorods, 
And uh, also, if anything managed to get through that body armor, we can also rub out some of this Vedi gel on ourselves to heal ourselves up really fast. So these are some of the wonders of both medical engineering as well as genetic um, materials engineering to help make our world a safer place. All these events in the Hung Games, much of them take place within artificial arena in which the tributes have to fight it out. As it's shown in the movies, they aren't engineered out there somewhere, they're actually inside enormous buildings which are simulating these environments. So for example in the second one, in the second movie, the um, giant clock environment is actually within an arena. Now this sort of engineering on this sort of scale seems awfully large um, and, awf- and aw- awfully very out there to be able to sim- entirely simulate an artificial environment inside, but um, it, the U.S. Navy has um, actually done this. As uh, last year, they built a built several in- large indoor environments, which are uh, designed to um, simulate various uh, various battlefields that um, soldiers and rob- uh, soldiers and um, military robots will encounter. Uh, and what they do is just like in the Hunger Games, they have a artificial environment, so they have trees, a fake lake, um, fake mountains, um, and what they do is they, and, and also just like in the Hunger Games, they uh, track all these, um, they track these environments using cameras. So they have uh, high-speed video cameras set up throughout the environment and watch as participants, whether robotic or human, deal with different challenges in the environment. They've simulated um, deserts, oceans, coasts, waterfalls, rock walls. Uh, they've got large, um, large mechanized environments. So a coast, a, a coastal setting that can adjust the adjust the um, slope of the the slope of the beach. Uh, they've got um, artificial sound, so um, marching troops or marching troops or um, jungle, uh, la- a, a noisy jungle at night. They can adjust the lighting um, to go from go from night to day at, at whatever speed they wish. And they can even cr- rapidly create pools to um, simulate flooding. And they've designed these uh, arenas in various sizes. So the largest one, half the size of a football field, and they've made the smaller one it just have a tiny little room with cameras embedded in the wall um to watch where people look so they, they simulate simulate stimuli and watch how soldiers react so these are all really cool ways of actually building up an environment that is fully adapted adaptive to whatever circumstance you want to simulate which means you can really test things uh, in any possible circumstance before you put it out in the field and you could do a similar thing uh, with humans by and I like the fact that to trick robots and to train robots, we build real-world type scenarios. But to train humans, we build computerized robotic type scenarios. So it's kind of a nice little uh, in- inversion. And um, we can actually make virtual reality. And I'm sure you've seen the virtual reality machines that we've constructed, which are the headsets, but also then an omnidirectional treadmill. So you then are walking and moving in the space that you see without actually going anywhere. Which is really, which is really cool. I mean, it's a bit clunky at the moment. I'm not sure if anyone's heard of the Oculus Rift, which is a, a virtual reality type headset. That's uh, that's quite interesting to see. It is really cool to look at and really cool to use, and enabling that motion part of it and adds a further level of immersion inside. And this is all really cool because <laughs> when you, when the, one of the next levels of this though is to actually build up the immersion level. Because at the moment it's just a headset, so you can't see your arms and your hands. There's no feedback. There's no tactile feedback. A couple of other things that militaries worked on, a couple of private companies as well, is tactile suits that then either 
give you motion or, or, or shock or something to actually simulate. So if you're playing Modern Warfare or COD, you actually feel the shot of impact of a bullet thanks to some sort of stimulus applied to you. And they have other ones which are massive rooms that you go in with uh, air jets and uh, air cannons and paintball that actually shoot at you so you actually feel something when you get shot or you can feel things flying past you, which is at, further builds the immersion. And so when you think about building a virtual reality, it's not just about one thing. It's about which is sight. It's also about tricking all your other senses, which is sound, which is pretty easy, um, smell, which is a bit tougher, uh, and tactile feelings, which is a lot harder to do and replicate realistically. But we are working on it and we are getting there. So simulated environments are out there. They are possible. Maybe not quite level on the level of the Matrix yet or the Hunger Games, but we are working on it. We're getting close. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Virtual reality, genetic engineering, and Medigel. We've talked about all these things and how they work in the Hunger Games and how we've actually built them in the real world. As science science progresses, as has always happened, science fiction becomes science fact. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.